welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning, or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. Good morning, everybody. How are you doing? It's good. What a lovely Sunday morning at the end of quite a chaotic week, actually. It's been quite interesting. So um, welcome, uh, welcome from me. So we're in our summer Eucharist and we're taking a very fast-paced walk, run through the book of Mark. Uh, The book of Mark itself is a really fast-paced book. It just goes bang, bang, bang with events, events, events. Um, And I'm I'm going to try and cover in a very light-touch way, I'm going to try and cover two chapters today. So that's quite a... Uh, quite a fast-paced thing itself. We're covering chapters four and five. If you want to follow along, um, we'll have some um, some readings up on the on the screen at the same time as well. But my initial title for this was four parables, three healings, and a storm, because that's what it covers, and it's it's quite a it's quite a fast-paced thing. It it all ta- all the events take place in and around the Sea of Galilee, which is a big freshwater lake um, in. Uh, right at the edges of what was Judea back 2,000 years ago, um, still at the edges of Israel itself, is on the border between Israel and Syria um, in present-day geography. And it's not far from Jesus' home in Nazareth, um, which was only a few, uh, a few kilometers away. Chapter 4, I'll just give you an overview. Chapter 4 starts with the famous parable of the sower, um, where the sower scatters the seed and then Jesus reinterprets that clearly for the disciples. But it's also followed by parables of the lamp, um, the parables of the seed, which is one that I'm not very familiar with and it sort of surprised me, so we'll come on to that in a minute. And the parable of the mustard seed, the kingdom of God being like the mustard seed. Um, And the chapter concludes with um, an account of a storm on the Sea of Galilee itself, so quite geographically located Chapter 5 moves across the other side of the Sea of Galilee to the the Gentile side um, of the Sea of Galilee and starts off with the healing of a a man who's quite disturbed and um, in in that non-Jewish Decapolis region and then moves back to the other side of a place called Capernaum where there's an encounter with um, a person, um, a synagogue leader, so someone who's in in, in charge of the, some of the community there, a respected person, um, and a woman who has had a long-term medical condition. So it's quite, a, it's quite a fast-paced thing, but it's all around that geographical location of the Sea of Galilee, and, and I think um, that helps to ground some of the action and some of the, the things that are going on. I had to read through this a few times before sort of themes became clear to me um, because it's, it's one of those things that there's so much going on in these two chapters that you just go, actually, how do I tie this together? How do I 
bring some, something coherent into a, a conversation that we have this morning. Um, and I think there are three key themes emerging. And those are secrets. There's something about secrets going on in, this, in this, these two chapters. There's something about trust, about who we trust in and, and, and where, where, is our, where is our foundation for trust. And there's something about power. Um, where, where does power and authority lie? And that comes across in, in these chapters as well. So we're going to take a walk through together and examining where those three themes get picked up in, in the story. Um, but I think it's important to think about this account um, from probably three different perspectives. First of all, imagine that you're one of these newly called disciples. You, know, you, were, you were minding your own business about three weeks ago and this amazing rabbi, prophet, preacher comes along and there's something about him that he called you to follow him and you've responded and you're early in this relationship and you're not quite sure what's going on <laughs> and you have a lot to learn and you have a lot of questions. So think about it from the perspective of those early disciples. They're wondering what's going on here. Who is this Jesus? What's he about? Why, why am I following him? Sort of thing. The second perspective is this account was written by Mark. It's one of the earliest accounts of the life of Jesus. Probably the source material for this was a conversation with the Apostle Peter, who was a first-hand witness to things that are going on. But Mark was writing it to a very early Christian community in the late first century. So these are people who are they're, they're also early disciples of Jesus. They're, they're some of the people, they're the first people in the world to be called Christians, but they're living in a Roman-dominated society. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on that's probably politically sensitive for them. Um, and therefore, Mark's trying to give them a full picture of what Jesus was like and what this new kingdom of God is going to be like. So think about it, you know, you are a first, first century Christian living in that context. What are you reading into this? And then finally, think about us, because there's something universal about these accounts of the life of Jesus. So what can it mean for us? And I'll, I'll try and bring out some of those things and some of those questions that we might have as we encounter that coming through. So I'm not going to read through all two chapters because that's... Um, that's why you've got printed stuff. You can read it. You know, I downloaded an audio book of it yesterday and that was quite interesting to read it, um, to, to listen to it as well. So I encourage you to, to go and have a, have a read or listen to the whole thing. But let's kick off with the very first bit, which is the parables. And there are four parables in this, in this space. There's the parable of the sower, which is really famous. There's the, um, the parable of the, the lamp on a stand, there's the parable of the seed, which I'll come to, and the parable of the mustard seed. Let's look at what Jesus had to say about that. So, Neil, you stick the first passage up. This is from verse 9, chapter 4. Then Jesus said, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, 
the 12 and the others around him asked about the parables. So he's already told them about the, the, the parable of the sower and they're going, what's this about Jesus? He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. And then Jesus turned to them, the disciples, and said, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? Jesus is indicating there there's something about parables which have a, a surface meaning and a deeper meaning. And just let me think, well, why, why the mystery? Why the mystery? Why, why did Jesus come out, Jesus, and be a bit sort of say what it said like it is? What's the reason for the secrecy? Is there something Jesus wants to hide here? Is there something where he wants us to have a hidden code that we have to find the key and, and turn the key and, and, and unlock that code? What does it take for us, to, for us as disciples today to, to, try and un, to try and look behind the story and look to the hidden meaning? And I wonder whether there's something that Jesus was saying to his disciples that there's actually an attitude in which we, approach, we need to approach these things. The attitude is something, you know, there's got to be an openness to learn. There's got to be an openness to inquire. There's got to be a curiosity about what is Jesus saying here. There's got to be something about having our mindset open to, to, be, to be changed and not to approach these with maybe a fixed mindset. There's maybe humility that we need to bring to listening to parables, which brings with it a willingness to change. I think there's also something about patience and time that it brings to us as well. You remember the disciples, this is the start of a three-year journey that they were going through with Jesus. They weren't going to understand everything on day one. So disciples as well, for us, you know, how much of that is, yeah, we've just got to take our time and be patient. And we've got to be patient to, to spend our apprenticeship with Jesus. Maybe that's the same on some of the people that you know that you're, you're desperate for those people, your friends and your family, to come to know Jesus and have that be a, something life-changing and, and restoring for them. Again, is there a message here about be patient? Some of this takes time for people to understand and get to grips with. Some of it takes retelling, takes exploring, takes sitting with people and being patient and helping people to, to, to understand that themselves. And then I suppose there's also maybe something about the context in which Jesus was, was speaking you know, the, a really obvious message at this time in his ministry could have got him arrested earlier. He could have, you know, he, he picked a few fights, but he picked them as he went through in, in, in the right way. And I think we'll see some of that coming through. So I see something about retaining a hidden meaning, which means that if you want to find out more about Jesus, you've got to go looking. And again, maybe that's the same for us. So I suppose the question for us in, in, that con in, in this is, 
You know, how much is our discipleship driven by curiosity? Um, I was having a couple of meetings. Uh, uh, we're doing something new at work at the moment, and I've got to learn a lot about this new context. Um, I've been saying to the people in the meetings, look, my superpower here is ignorance, <laughs> because that drives curiosity. So maybe our superpower as disciples is curiosity. Can we approach Jesus with a curious mind, a willingness to be drawn into the story, to be faced with maybe uncomfortable truths about, about us as, as the mirror of that story reflects back to us? So have your superpower as curiosity. And then this is one that surprised me, the, the, the seed story. I, I sort of encountered this really fresh. I, I, you know, I know the mustard seed story. I know the lamp and the stuff. I know the sower. And then this one comes in the middle, which surprised me. Um, verse 26. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. There's a bunch of us here who love gardening. Um, you know, and I think that's, the, the magic about gardening is you stick a little seed in and then yeah, you go away and you be patient. If you, if you do what I've done sometimes, which is you poke at the seed to see is it actually germinating, that's not a good thing. And uh, it probably, it doesn't. My slugs do that for me anyway, so um, you can, uh, that, that's what's happening most of my plants. But there's something really mysterious and magic about this idea of the seed in the darkness just sitting there, chemical reactions going on, you know, something happening with the DNA within the seed and it, it's just, it sprouts from one end to, to grow the stalk and the other end to grow the, 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 the roots. Really magic stuff that goes on in, in the dark. What does that tell us about the workings of the kingdom of God? And there's something about in secret those workings of the kingdom of God. There's something it's saying as well about death and resurrection you know, as the seed gets buried and then suddenly it bursts to life again and you see the, you see the, the little proto-leaves, the cotyledons, you see the, the, the rest of the leaves appear and so on. There's, it bursts into life. So much of our spiritual life allows for that quiet germination in the dark, allows for that patience, that just waiting to see if something will grow. I think sometime, maybe summer's a good time to recognize some of those slower rhythms of our discipleship. So the pivot point in this whole two chapters appears to be the storm event. So let's listen to that. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side, leaving the crowd behind. Um, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with them. A furious squall came up, and any of you know the geography of that part of um, Israel. The, the, the wind gets funneled into that rift valley that, that, that the, um, the Lake of Galilee sits in, and really you can whip up a, a, a right storm. 
So a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat, so it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified. After the storm had calmed, they were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey, waves obey him. It surprises me a bit that some of the disciples, you know, Simon, Andrew, these were seasoned fishermen whose livelihood was based around the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> so they, know, they, they knew this place well. They knew what storms were well. Yet still, this particular event shook them. Or was it the reaction of Jesus that shook them? <laughs> calmly sleeping on a cushion in the stern of the boat. But what they're learning through this on their journey of discipleship is about power. The power that Jesus has over nature, over the wind and the waves. That's what really terrifies them. You know, a storm and a squall and nearly drowning, that's, that's one thing, but okay, who is this? Who's this person who can go, be still, be quiet, and the wind and the waves be quiet. And it starts to challenge them about their trust. You know, Jesus says, don't you have faith in me? I, I like to use the word trust for faith as a synonym sometimes because it just helps me understand what that relationship is. So Jesus is asking them to trust him early in this relationship and showing him the power of what happens if they do. So I don't know whether you, know, you feel that you're right in the middle of a storm right now. Sometimes it feels like that. If you look at the events in our world this week, you look at the conflicts going on, not just Ukraine, but Eritrea, Afghanistan, a bunch of other places in the world. Look at um, Sri Lanka this, yesterday and the events going on in our world. There's a bunch of stuff going on in our world. That's impacting us here. It's, you know, look at rising prices. I don't know if anybody's been to Asda to try and liberate some, some Lurpak yet. But, um, you know, security tags on Lurpak, goodness sake, that, that's the world we're living in. But we're, we're also in a world where more people are using food banks because it's a real pressure on people. Where we're looking, we're, we're, we're seeing incomes drop. We're seeing a lot more uncertainty for people. People have got health worries. I've still got climate anxiety. You know, I'm going, look what's happening in Australia right now. Look what's happening in the US. Climate change hasn't gone away, even though political stuff is, is happening. Name your own storm or storms. There may be a number of them. And do you sometimes just want to waken Jesus up from sleep and go, actually, hold on, Jesus, don't you care? If you think like that, you're not just in the company of those early disciples. You're actually in the company of many of the writers of the Psalms. Listen to Psalm 142. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift my voice to the Lord for mercy. 
I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it's you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I'm in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may, be, may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. You have permission. You have permission from, from God to complain to God. That's a, don't be ashamed of that. It's something that should be part of our discipleship. And just a plug for the AP care team. If you, if you are in the middle of a personal storm, there's a bunch of people around this place who want to support and help and give you pastoral care. If you go to apbc.net slash care, you'll find out who they are and you'll be able to contact them. So please don't, don't hesitate to ask for support and care if you are right in the middle of a storm. So finally... We, we come to the healings. Three healings in, in chapter five. And I was just saying to Emma um, just earlier, there's so many layers to these stories and we've got so many questions and we've got only a few minutes to cover them. So we're not going to go deep. Um, but you know, again, what I've just said, feel permission is there to ask lots of questions and to be inquiring about it. I find a helpful thing from Tom Wright in his commentary on Mark, where he said, don't, one of the complaints about this is, well, why, why didn't Jesus just heal everybody? Why didn't he do miracles around the whole world? Why doesn't he solve all of this sort of stuff? And Tom says, just as Jesus wasn't coming to be a one-man liberation movement in the traditional revolutionary sense, so he wasn't coming to be a one-man emergency medical centre. He was indeed starting a revolution and he was indeed bringing God's healing power, but his aim went deeper. These things were signs of the real revolution, the real healing that God was to accomplish through Jesus' death and resurrection. Signposts are important, but they're not the destination. So I think it's something about, as we read these accounts, they're in that, Mark put them in, that, in, in his account for a reason because they're telling something bigger about the journey that Jesus was on. So the first healing on the Gentile side of the lake, you can tell it's Gentile because there were pig farmers, obviously. Um, but Jesus' power is demonstrated in that by his casting out of whatever was impacting that man's life and holding him back, the powers that were there, there were spiritual powers described in the, in the Bible as demons. Um, and I think this just shows Jesus' power over some of those dark forces that can take hold of people's lives. It's really interesting, he doesn't ask the man here to keep his experience quiet. 
He tells them to go and tell everybody in that Gentile region what was going on, which is really interesting. And then we come across to this person, Jairus, is a person who Mark refers to by name. It sort of makes me think maybe Jairus was maybe well known to some of the people who Mark was writing to or was a name that they recognised because he'd been a community leader in that area. And Jairus shows an immense trust in Jesus as he comes to him. His daughter's really ill. She's at death's door. And Jairus comes along and goes, my daughter's dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and lived. That simple trust, that, that expression of, of faith and belief that actually Jesus could do this because he'd done it before. And then during the, the walk to Jairus' house, Capernaum was probably a fairly small place, it was probably a reasonably short walk, but during that walk is this encounter with uh, a woman who's got this chronic gynecological condition, something that she's kept secret for as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. A little parallelism there. And something that she kept secret because having a condition like that was really, was, it was shameful in her culture. It prevented her from having a normal family life. It prevented her from having a normal, normal social interactions because in her culture, it was ceremonially unclean. The woman herself, if you think about it, she's probably you know, somewhere in her late, mid to late 20s. And she'd been suffering from this probably since puberty. So something, something that just brings that experience a bit more alive. But her trust was real too. It was real and almost secret. She was, she was, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if just if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. So that level of trust, but in secret. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed. What a brilliant moment of release for her. Is there something in your life that you're keeping a secret from others because it causes you pain or causes you shame? How could you express that? level of trust to Jesus think about coming to him for that for that reassurance his reaction was one of compassion and healing and restoration but of course by now the family of Jairus had given up hope because the daughter was dead but Jesus goes anyway and again exercises his power by restoring her. There's a number of accounts of Jesus raising people from the dead. This is one of them. But there's something about the level of trust that Jairus had in Jesus actually being exceeded by Jesus' level of restoration. Even in the face of people laughing at him and going, yeah, yeah, sorry, mate, you're too late. Jesus still went ahead 
Don't think Jairus' trust extended that far. Jesus' compassion extended further. So I wonder, is there something that in your life has caused you to give up hope? How can you express your trust in God in that time, recognizing that hope may have gone, may have disappeared? And then Jesus tells them in the Jewish community, let's keep this a secret. Goes back to that secret thing again. So what do we see here in this, these two chapters? I think we see three things. I think we see secrets. We see the personal, private secrets of suffering and pain in people and how Jesus reacts to that. We also see the mysteries and the secrets that the disciples uncover through this beginning of a journey of lifelong discipleship. We see their discipleship in crisis during the storm and we see it during times of learning and curiosity. We see power. And I wonder, do we underestimate the power of Jesus in our lives? Whether that's in nature, against dark forces, against sickness and death. Is there a God here who exercises power in compassion? And does that then lead us to more trust? And I think the challenge for us as disciples is how do we continue to build trust incrementally, bit by bit, slowly, in this Jesus that we worship? Let's pray. Lord, help us to to come to you in an attitude of humility and of trust. Amen.